Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 12, March by John Lewis. We have the right to be here and will not in any way be interfering with the pursuit of traffic. Required Reading with Tom and Stella podcast is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we're going to take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we've both read. We're going to analyze it, discuss it, review it, and determine whether or not it is worthy of its reputation. I'm Tom Panneries, and with me, as always, is my wonderful co-host, the Coke to my Pepsi. Stella, how are you? I, I'm okay, but uh, I don't uh, appreciate that, um, mainly because I'm not a fan of the Coke, so if you could use orange soda, because that's my favorite, I would love that. Yeah, but when you go into a restaurant and people ask for Coke, you'll inevitably come to a place where they're like, well, is, is Pepsi okay? And since you're, everybody seems to like you more, it's a fitting analogy. <laughs> Okay, so you're the alternative when there's like no Stella. Well, no, uh, it's 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 it was my pick. So is Pepsi okay? okay? So uh, happy anniversary, by the way. 
This is twelve. Is this when we started it? I oh, don't know well, if it's the exact day, but it's episode. if it's twelve episodes, so that's about a year. We made it. Yeah, we did. Do you ever think about how intimate it is to actually have like a permanent co-host? Um, sometimes you know, because you know you work with certain people for like, not that we're like co-workers or anything, but it is kind of along the lines of like you know somebody so well because you just you know, are always working on the thing with them. I guess it's like any other partnership in that sense of, you know, creative partnership. Sure. Well, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of trust inherent with, with this particular position, because I think if you (laughs) did not trust me or if I didn't trust you, this wouldn't really work because, you know, we have to read the books and and be prepared. Mm -hmm. We have to come on time, ready to record. We have to uh, edit and everything. So it's a, it's a pretty heavy relationship we've got here. Yeah, it's too bad um, Skype can't be trusted on the same level that we can trust each other. <laughs> uh, yeah, unfortunately <laughs> not. <laughs> uh. um, but yeah, no, it is. And um, and then, like, you know, I mean, we're part of that greater podcasting community, which has its own odd dynamic, you know? Sure. Because we'll, we'll be invited onto other people's shows or we'll have each other on our other solo endeavors. Right. Yeah. Oh, we've done that a few times, so... Um, but that's even, that's even, that's a little different though. Um, so like when you come on my show or I come on your show, it's just kind of like we're each other's guest, whereas here mm-hmm. we're both doing the heavy lifting. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and this is a segue, pretty heavy book. Absolutely. Um, both in terms of content and literal weight, <laughs> Because it's three books, it's and it's a graphic novel, so graphic novels tend to be a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. heftier. Um, it is March by John Lewis. Um, we picked this one. Um, well, I picked this one, but it was one that I knew you had been reading when I yes. picked it, or you had already read it when I picked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and my history with the book, uh, pretty much begins. With this, although this has been on my list to read for a while, mm-hmm. it's just, but you know, I finally, I bought it um, back in June and had been reading it, and then I knew you had been reading it, and then when the time came for me to pick the book for this episode, I decided to go with this um, and actually changed my original choice. But uh, well, we'll get into whether or not we. You know that was a that was a good decision after we when we do the the recap and everything. Uh, what drew you to this book when you first read it? Yeah, so I every year the eighth graders go to Washington D.C. and I have as primarily an eighth grade teacher though I do have high school students. I go on this trip. I haven't for the past couple of years because it's been very close to the AP test and so I get nervous and I end up staying with my AP students so I can review with them. But I'm not sure what year it would have been, but the first two were out. And my favorite museum when we go up there every time is the museum. It's just, it's amazing. I love it. I love its permanent fixtures that I've gone through a couple times, like um, 
some of the best photographs to grace time magazine, things like that. And then they have temporary ones as well. I think the last time I went Camelot with uh, the Kennedys was one of the temporary and they had a civil rights section actually. And, even though I've gone through it and I, when I go to museums, I like to read every placard. That's what I do because, you know, I like to really absorb as much as I can. I do remember that there was a counter with three stools. And now I wish, gosh, I wish I could go back there and they'd still have that so I could see who the people are that they're referencing and everything. But there was a timeline on in the hallway leading up to it in the entryway and at one point this was mentioned and I thought oh that's intriguing I didn't know that there was a graphic novel that explores the civil rights movement and the leader of this trip at the time he was there and I said you know oh had you heard about that and he actually used the funds from the trip part of it because we get a per diem and everything um, to buy the first two for me, and so I. But I had yet to touch it or pick it up because I was considering, I think, doing a seminar at that point with um, with graphic novels. But that didn't pan out. But then this year, I was given that option again and decided to go with it. So I was going to do a seminar that was graphic novels in historic context. And I was going to do Persepolis, which is one of my favorites, and Mouse, and this one. And so in preparation for it, not hard planning, but I wanted to read through everything before, you know, the class actually started, which, spoiler alert, <laughs> the class was canceled because only two people yeah, signed up for it. Yeah, it was a bummer because I had, like, Persepolis all set up and, like, the unit was ready to go. But I read – I was on my way to Iowa for a yearly trip with my dad, and I had kind of bad flights. I guess they were okay, but there was just heavy layovers, and even the first one was a little bit delayed because there were storms, I think, in Charlotte, something like that. So I was reading one and two on that trip, and then I had ordered three, and I think when I got back from that trip, I read three. So uh, I, I don't know what I was expecting when I was reading it. I think just like the blanket term civil rights, I was sort of ready to, to see what this was like. But until you actually sit down and open it, and even I think – you don't get the full impact until you're in book two because book one is pretty mild compared to the things that happen in two and three. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it opened my eyes, I think, because it uh, puts you in the point of view of, you know, well, for me anyways, you know, as a white female, I obviously cannot relate on you know in a certain way to this story but it i really liked the fact that we are following john throughout and you're getting to see that side of things mm -hmm. um and and i feel like it's more intimate and engaging than just like watching a newsreel perhaps because they are his words and everything yes and uh that's it's really nice with just a little bit of background on the book now i'm not going to give too much background on the author himself because this as stella just mentioned this is his essentially life story up until a point. It is a memoir. Um, but John Lewis, in case you don't know who he is, uh, in addition to being a uh, key figure in the civil rights movement back in the 60s, is currently a uh, representative, a congressman in the House of Representatives, uh, representing Georgia's 5th District, which is, I believe, covers uh, Atlanta. And uh, he co-wrote this with Andrew, uh, I'm going to say Aiden, I think is the uh, Aiden, A-Y-D-I-N. It's either Aiden or Aiden. 
Um, and his bio, I'm just going to crib his bio from the back of, uh, of, of book three here. Uh, he is uh, an Atlanta native, and he currently serves as the digital director and policy advisor in John Lewis's office. And uh, this is a little interest, a bit of an interesting tidbit from his bio. After learning that his boss had been inspired as a young man by the 1950s comic book Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story... Um, Aiden conceived the March series and collaborated with Representative Lewis to write it while also composing a master's thesis on the history and impact of the Montgomery story. Today, he continues to write comics and lecture about the history of comics and the civil rights movement. So um, he's also been Lewis's uh, communications director, press secretary, etc. So they wrote the book together and it was drawn by Nate Powell, who is a graphic novelist uh, originally from Arkansas, who was born in 1978, so he's a year younger than me. Uh, he graduated from the School of Visual Arts in the 2000s. His work includes You Don't Say, Any Empire Swallow Me Hold, The Silence of Friends, The Year of the Beast, and uh, something that I saw on my kitchen shelf the other day and noticed the name on, an adaptation of Rick Riordan's The Lost Hero, because Brett has been reading a lot of the Rick Riordan books and the lost hero graphic novel is something he owns. And I noticed Nate Powell's name. I was like, Oh, he, uh, <laughs> he, he, he drew March. The uh, only thing I, I got out of that was, uh, that your kitchen has books on shelves. Yes. On the counter. So, <laughs> okay. well, no, it has cookbooks on the shelf. I shouldn't say it was on the counter. It was on the shelf. Um, in addition to March, Powell has spoken about his work at the United Nations and created animated illustration for SPLC's uh, documentary, Selma, The Bridge to the Ballot. He's currently work writing and drawing his next book, Cover, and drawing Two Dead with writer Van Jansen. So those are the authors, and uh, the book itself is a graphic novel in three volumes. Um, it is a continuous story. It's not like when we did Persepolis, we only covered... Persepolis 1 and Persepolis 2 and 1 and 2 are companions to one another but sure but Persepolis 2 can really be read on its own as well as it's a um it's it's called the was the called the story of a return and it takes place when Marjan is much older mm -hmm. like after she's left and everything so it's it's, it's it, it it's been a while since I've read book two of Persepolis, but to me it felt like a, it was almost like a sequel more than a next chapter. Sure. And, and I mean, there's a gap of time. Like yeah. she, she's an adult and yeah. I feel like it, it's also been a while for me. I feel like it deals more with her rather than her and Iran mm -hmm. together. Yeah. I, th I'm going to agree with that. It's been a while for me. Uh, I would equate this to more like mouse where there is a gap in mouse, but the Part two of Mouse does continue directly the story of part mm. one, even though those I think those were written quite a, like a decent length of time apart. So book one was published in 2013, book two in 2015 and book three in 2016 by Top Shelf Productions. They are all easily available in separate trades. I would say a, a number of public libraries have it. Uh, there is a, I actually have the slipcase trilogy edition, um, because I happened upon the, <laughs> I happened upon the luck of having an Amazon gift card and seeing the slipcase trilogy edition, which retails for about 50 bucks on sale for 27. And I was like, heck yeah. Um, these, I mean, granted these do run about, 
Um, separately, they're about uh, the book one's fifteen bucks, and the other two are about twenty dollars. So, if you do buy this, it is going to set you back a little bit of money. I don't have my Kindle with me, so I can't, and I don't want to mess with <laughs> the way my computer's been behaving right now. I don't feel like messing with uh, with Chrome to look it up on like Comixology or, or, or see if digitally. I know it's available digitally. I just don't know if the cost is any less. But like I said, go to your public library. Check it out. It's 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 uh, it is it is available, um, and the slipcase cover has the Edmund Pettus Bridge in front of an orange yellow hue, and in the reflection of the water below is the Lincoln Memorial. It's a gorgeous cover on the slipcase, and I will uh, in the show notes I'll make sure that there are covers of all the slipcase plus all three uh, volumes. Uh, the book has garnered an, an enormous amount of critical acclaim. In fact, the blurb on the back of book one is from President Bill Clinton, and oh. uh, it says, Congressman John Lewis has been a resounding moral voice in the quest for equality for more than 50 years, and I'm so pleased that he is sharing his memories of the civil rights movement with America's young leaders. In March, he brings a whole new generation with him across the Edmund Pettus Bridge from a past of clenched fists into a future of outstretched hands. And uh, there is equal praise from uh, on book two. It's from Labar Labar Burton uh, of Reading Rainbow fame, and uh, Raina Telgemeier is the blurb on the back of book three. And there's all sorts of blurbs and stuff. It's it has won a number of awards. Um, <clears throat> the 2016 National Book Award winner for young people's literature, the 2017 Prince Award, the 2017 Coretta Scott King Author Award. The 2017 Cybert Medal, a 2017 Yalsa Award for Excellence in Nonfiction, the 2017 Walter Award winner, and has, I believe, it also won an Eisner. So um, it is it is a very well regarded and celebrated book, and it is uh, readily available. And we are going to do what we usually do, which is synopsize the book. And I, I do want to at least add that it just recently won the Eisner this uh, this summer. Oh, it did. Cool. Because I know it was it was uh, in, in the back of book three. It said it was a it said Will Eisner Comic Industry Award. So it must have won a you know, that's that is that is awesome. So. So we're going to go ahead and synopsize. Um, and uh, it is a it is a hefty synopsis. We. We wanted we wanted to be thorough, and then we're going to give our have our discussion and review. Um, so I'm going to take book one. Uh, Stella is going to take a look at book two for us, and uh, I will come back with book three, and then we will go into our usual discussion. Book one is dedicated to past and future children of the movement. We open briefly on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, where John Lewis is helping to lead a protest march. They are met with police who tell them that they are participating in an unlawful assembly and, are, and they quickly tear gas and beat the marchers. We then flash forward to January 20th, 2009, which people familiar with recent history will know is the day of the inauguration of Barack Obama as the president of the United States. John Lewis, who is now a congressman from Georgia, wakes up and heads to his office where he briefly meets with a woman and her two young children to whom he relates the events of his own youth. While a woman and her children will leave his office before book one is over, the events of January 21st, 2009, and I think I said January 20th earlier, and I apologize, is the framing device for all three books. And for the sake of simplicity, we're going to spend most of our plot synopsis within that 
frame. So uh, we won't really be coming to the frame story framing device until about uh, the end of our synopsis. So John Lewis grew up in Pike County, Alabama on a farm. His father was a sharecropper, and when John was young, he tended to the family's chickens. He also reminisces about his experience as a child attending church and how he was inspired to want to become a preacher. He began preaching to the chickens, including trying to baptize at least one bird that he almost killed, and at some point he has to kill one of his birds because of the farm's business needs to send it to market. One day, his uncle Otis comes to the farm and picks him up, taking him to his home in Buffalo, New York. On that trip, he drives through various states in the Deep South and gets some hint of the reality of Jim Crow. And the city leaves an unforgettable impression on him, including what he, that he saw the vast difference between the world of black people and white people. School comes around and John is an enthusiastic student and even sneaks out to go to school when his parents insist he stay home to help on the farm. In 1954, he sees a headline about the Brown versus the Board of Education Topeka, Kansas decision, which is the landmark Supreme Court case that declared separate but equal unconstitutional in public schools. Around the same time, he hears the voice of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for the first time. This, of course, is not the end of the civil rights movement. There is an immediate backlash to Brown versus the Board of Education as segregationist politicians double down on their resistance to the ruling. And I think we should note here that here in Virginia, where we live, uh, I believe the state didn't fully really integrate its schools until the 1970s. And we see the murder of Emmett Till, as well as Rosa Parks' refusal to sit at the back of a public bus in Montgomery, Alabama, followed by the Montgomery bus boycott. John begins preaching for real, enrolls at a Baptist college in Tennessee, but decides that he would rather attend Troy State, which he applies to. But since Troy doesn't accept black students, he never gets a reply. He then meets Dr. King for the first time, who tells him that to attend Troy, he has to sue the state of Alabama, and that will mean getting his parents' permission since he's not legally an adult yet. He also tells John the dangers he will face if he decides to take a role in the movement. John heads back home, but his parents refuse to sign anything, as they do not want themselves to be in trouble. He returns to Nashville and then begins training with the movement in nonviolent protest tactics, and in 1959 participates in his first sit-in at a segregated lunch counter. These go on for months, and in some cases get violent and lead to his arrest. The arrests incite further protesting, as they all refuse bail. The sit-ins and the boycotts continue. After hearing a speech by Thurgood Marshall and attending a conference organizing by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC, John and a number of other student activists form the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, or as it's referred to uh, in kind of common uh, parlance, SNCC. On April 19, 1960, the House of Alexander Luby, a civil rights activist, is bombed with dynamite, and the following day he helps lead a huge march on the city hall in Nashville. The mayor eventually gives in to the pressure and orders the lunch counters to be integrated, although, as we see in the book's final panel, white shop owners are not going to take this lying down. Book two opens with continued resistance over lunch counters and movie theaters in Nashville. John says that after his being arrested, his parents were devastated and he became the source of humiliation and embarrassment. As a result, he says he doesn't go home very much. He spends his 21st birthday in February 1961 in jail for protesting a segregated movie theater. 
In April 1961, he joins the Freedom Riders, a part of the civil rights movement dedicated to fighting segregation on public buses and bus stations. He heads to Washington, D.C. to meet with the group's organizers and then boards a bus from D.C. to New Orleans. He does not make it to New Orleans because he is attacked by a white man in a bus station in South Carolina. He stays at Friendship Junior College that night and receives a telegram offering him an opportunity to travel to India on a mission much like the Peace Corps. He travels to Philadelphia to take a physical and says that he planned on meeting his fellow Freedom Riders in Birmingham in a couple of weeks. However, his group does not make it to Birmingham, and we see a bombed-out bus with a mob of white people attacking it. This is sort of the... That's the imagery that you see at the cover on book two. Uh, having returned to Nashville, John hears about the bus on the news, and despite the obvious risks, some of which are relayed to them by the office of then Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, John and colleagues such as Diane Nash decide to resume the Freedom Rides. When they resume, they are arrested again and literally <laughs> taken across state lines into Tennessee, where they are dumped out in a hostile area in the middle of the night. They find refuge with an old black couple and are set to head to Nashville the next day, but after hearing about a protest at a bus station in Birmingham, decide to head there. The protest goes on for a few days, and John and his colleagues face opposition from the KKK, as well as mobs of white people. On May 20th, 1961, they take a bus to Montgomery, where they are met by an angry, violent mob. On May 21st, they hold a meeting at the First Baptist Church in Montgomery, and the church is bombed. Following the incident, Dr. King is ready to back down on the Freedom Rides, but the members of SNCC insist that they continue regardless of the consequences, and he announces that the students will continue to ride. They do, despite some reservations and refusal to participate by some of the older people in the movement. John and many of the other Freedom Riders are arrested and thrown in jail and then sent to the Mississippi State Penitentiary. Penitentiary. They are released after three weeks, and by that time, the news of their actions had spread, and the movement to desegregate interstate travel by bus was going national. Soon after, King and his organization begin turning the focus of the movement on voting rights. This causes a split in SNCC, where part of the group focuses on that initiative, while the other half take more direct action and continue boycotts and other protests. 1961 becomes 1962 becomes 1963. Wow, Tom, you're so eloquent here. And there are more protests, more violence, and even individual murders of civil rights activists for which there are no convictions. On January 14, 1963, George Wallace is sworn in as the governor of Alabama and gives his famous segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever speech. Protests continue in Birmingham, and after King leads one of them, he is arrested in response to criticism from the area's liberal and moderate white leadership that he is stoking conflict by writing his now-famous letter from Birmingham jail. We see continued protests in 1963 that pit the SCLC and SNCC against the chief of police, Bull Connor. These include the children's protests on May 2nd that leads to arrests and a second march of children on May 3rd that leads to the police using fire hoses and dogs to attack the protesters. The images being shown across the country inspire many to take up action and the movement grows. On June 12, 1963, there is news of the murder of Medgar Evers. And on June 14th, John survives a terrible car accident and is soon elected head of SNCC. On June 22nd, John attends a meeting with President Kennedy and other civil rights leaders, with the exception of Malcolm X, and they tell the president about how they plan on marching on Washington. Kennedy is resistant to the idea, but the plans go on, and about a month later, John has a conversation with Robert F. Kennedy, where the attorney general tells him that his opinion has changed and that he supports what they plan on doing. 
John is given the opportunity to speak at the march, although his original draft, which is more forceful, I know, and accusatory than the higher-ups at the SCLC would like, is soundly and angrily rejected. He sees Malcolm X for the first time as well. He agrees to edit his speech and then gives it. King's famous I Have a Dream speech comes later that day, and after everything is done, he meets with President Kennedy one last time. In fact, it's the last time he would ever see JFK. We then flash forward to September 15, 1963, or Youth Sunday, and see the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. Book three opens with the same tragedy, this time from inside the church where several children are killed. Afterward, violence erupts in Birmingham. King speaks at the funeral of the children in the church and suggests a march in the state capitol in protest, placing a symbolic wreath at the state house. But Diane Nash is more aggressive with her plans and boils it down to two demands. One, force Wallace out of office, and two, guarantee everyone in Alabama the right to vote. King rejects the idea and the leadership of SNCC are decidedly angry. They then decide to focus their attention on getting a voting rights movement going in the smaller city of Selma. We are then introduced to Jim Clark, chief of police in Selma, and see the ways in which black citizens were discriminated against when registering to vote. Protests begin and continue despite resistance from registrars and violence from the police. John and the rest of SNCC and Selma line up to register continuously and are even thrown in jail yet again for their actions. In Mississippi, the Freedom Vote begins, which is a symbolic election held by SNCC to empower black people throughout the state. On November 22, 1963, John F. Kennedy is assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Lyndon Johnson becomes president and does does fast-track a civil rights bill, but he wants the movement to compromise by ceasing its protests. SNCC refuses and protests lunch counters in Atlanta, which gets John thrown in jail again, but is ultimately successful. SNCC also meets and begins drawing up a platform that is dedicated to overall civil rights in Mississippi and across the country, and this eventually leads to the formation of the Freedom Democratic Party, which would, con- which would participate in the Democratic National uh, Committee activities on a state and national level. The KKK burns crosses throughout Mississippi in protest, and three protesters, Mickey Schwerner, James Cheney, and Andy Goodman, go missing. They, in fact, have been murdered by local police, and their bodies are eventually found. The 1964 Civil Rights Act is passed and signed into law. John continues to help the voter rights movement and continues to be met with resistance. The Freedom Democratic Party tries to get representation at the Democratic National Convention in 1964 and gets some, but not as much as they want. LBJ stresses over his chances in the South when it comes to re-election, and while he does win handily over Barry Goldwater, the Electoral College of the South flips from Democratic to Republican, something that has not changed since. The conflict over representation in the DNC and the protests that erupted at the convention disillusions John and he heads to Africa on a peace mission sponsored and arranged by Harry Belafonte, where he visits several countries and is reinvigorated. Additionally, he has a deep conversation with Malcolm X about the civil rights movement. He returns to a movement that is definitely more fractured than it has been in a while, but still sees the need to continue his work. In December, 19 law enforcement officials are arrested with the mur- for the murders of three civil rights workers, but a judge dismisses the charges. John returns to Selma and picks up where he left off with the voting rights movement. 
motivated by the fact that the 1964 Civil Rights Act did not have any provisions for voting or voter registration. The protests continued and are met with the same resistance, much of it violent. But the protests grow. Soon, school teachers are standing up. Malcolm X is assassinated in 1965 and John attends the funeral. He then begins planning a march from Selma to Montgomery. Snick rejects the idea and he splits from the organization, planning to march anyway. King does not attend the march on March 7, 1965, which is the event that we saw all the way back at the beginning of Book 1. John and his fellow marchers are tear-gassed and beaten. They make their best attempts to march despite this, but are ultimately stopped. John goes directly from the march to a meeting at a local church and gives a speech where he says that he will not stop resisting. He then is taken to the hospital and that day becomes known as Bloody Sunday. Snick decides to take up the cause of the march and plans another for that Tuesday, March 9th. John is not there because he's still in the hospital, but the march is led by Dr. King and becomes known as the Turnaround Tuesday because of how when they met with resistance from local police, King turned the crowd around and marched back to the church. Snick is angry about this and stands up to King as well as tries to get the court system to give them an injunction so they will not be met with resistance from police, and if they are, it will be declared illegal. John testifies about being beaten. George Wallace tries to convince LBJ to get on his side and stop the protest, but the plan backfires and Johnson introduces the Voting Rights Act. The injunction is granted, and on March 21st, John Lewis and Dr. King lead the now-famous march from Selma to Montgomery. While the violence does not stop, the march is successful, and the Voting Rights Act passes on August 9, 1965. He meets with LBJ, who reminds him to keep working to get black voters registered, and he attends the signing ceremony, although he says that after that day, he felt a shift in himself and the movement and acknowledges that after that day, his time with it started to come to an end. We close in 2009, the night of the inauguration. John is at his house in Washington, D.C. and listens to a voicemail from Ted Kennedy, who had left it earlier that day, and it says, I was thinking of you and Martin. I was thinking about the years of work, the bloodshed, the people who didn't live to see this day. I was thinking about Jack and Bobby. And we end with John talking to Andrew Iden about that comic book idea. So that is March. Thank you for helping me... Uh read the very, very lengthy, thorough synopsis. Um, I'm going to throw it to you uh, so that I can take a break here and, <laughs> and, and clear my throat again. Uh, I, I kind of got the hint when we were talking about this book before we uh, started doing our summary, but uh, did, did you know, we always ask this, did you like it? I did like it. I wonder what type of person wouldn't like it, I guess besides the obvious... Um, yeah. <laughs> white supremacist or, or racist probably wouldn't appreciate it, but I thought it was really well done. Um, I became, however, more and more horrified uh, as I, <laughs> as you read on. Like I said, I think book one is rather tame. Uh, book two stuff really starts to go down, and I saw things that I really, even though you're told that these things happen, when you visually see them, and I know that this is a comic. So if I were there, it'd probably even hit me more. But when you visually see this stuff happen, it's like it's horrible. It's horrible. Um, and but there were a couple times also where it's very it's endearing and and some funny things happen too, which maybe you're not supposed to laugh at the fact that uh, Martin Luther King was said that you know he. Uh, <laughs> 
He didn't. He was being careful because he didn't want to be arrested. He was on probation. Then everyone's saying like, "Well, I was arrested. I was on probation." We're all on like, probation. I know his face is white. Is pale, which I guess is just the coloring. And there's like that, you know, the anime uh, sweat on his yeah. thing. I think I get to have the right to choose what uh, hill I'm going to die on or what yeah. crossing. So you know, there are some some funny moments there. But yeah, I think it was really well done and i think it gives you like i said an inside glimpse from one person's perspective and something different because i think in school we learn about the civil rights movement but i don't think i was really ever aware of SNCC or sclc or or the divisions that were happening and and you know the freedom rides and everything and so i i learned a great deal and i really appreciate this and i think this is something that is very relevant now and i think it unfortunately always will be in it and it, uh, people should read it. Yeah, my awareness of um, SNCC came from a course I took in college that was centered around the civil rights movement because we had taken, being being that I went to a Jesuit liberal arts or university, you had to take a theology class at some point and uh, I chose one called Political Theology and Social Existence which focused on the um, the civil rights movement and people in the civil rights movement and the professor was Dr. Charles Marsh, who at the time had just published a book called, and I'll plug it because I read parts of it and it was really good and I probably should go buy it and read the whole thing. It was called God's Long Summer and he interviewed a number of people from the movement, um, one of whom was, her last name is Hamer. And she's in the book, and I can't. And I'm, and I'm blanking on her first name. Um, and uh, he had one of the people come speak to us, and it was it was really powerful. So, but we had to read a book. Uh, so that was that was his book, and then we had to read a book called The River of No Return, whose author escapes me at the moment. But it was a history of SNCC. Um, but again, that was 20 years ago, so I knew of the existence, but I didn't know of like you know. And and I knew as as he was talking about this, I kind of put two together and kind of started thinking back to college. I'm like, okay, what do I remember from this course that I took? You know, back in the fall of 1997 or whenever it was. And um, I, but I, I can't say that I remembered the name John Lewis. I should have, you know, but it was one of those. It was one of those semesters where, like, you're reading everything, and mm-hmm. you know, you're 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 shoving a lot of information in to get through the semester. So some of it stuck with me, some of it didn't. Um, but I feel the same way you did. It if it wasn't for college, I would not have had this experience. You know, this any knowledge of any of this, and I I, I did feel that there was something very visceral about how the the graphic no pun intended nature of what happened um was displayed in the book um we'll talk about the talk about the art a little more in depth later but i also did like those little moments of brevity um because even like at the you mean levity levity sorry um yes levity uh when he's talking about like preaching to the chickens in the hen house like (laughs) just little moments like that that i that you're right It, it doesn't it's never in distaste and it's never like it's never out of place either. It really, um, the, the, the levity works, the, the, the horror, the graphic violence that you see, um, works. And, and no, and and in fact, I, I told, um, I told Amanda that if she gets, if she ever wants to, or or has the chance, she should, she should read it because she'd really enjoy it as well. Uh, and it's, it is one that, 
that I was I definitely would would like to pass on. So uh, let's get into it though. Let's get into the um, we uh, we have um, we have a framing device that we're, we're going to talk to talk about a little bit a little bit down the line. But I do want to talk about the very beginning of the book because we begin with Bloody Sunday, but we don't come back to that until like pretty much the last half of book three. Um, and I, I guess I assumed they always were going to write, they always knew they were going to write all three books. And it was just a matter of like, let's publish this in segments instead of one large graphic novel. Um, probably be because if you look at the size of this thing, if they publish this all in one book, it's like the size of an omnibus. And, uh, that wouldn't retail for, that wouldn't retail well. You know, if you if you think about it, like if you're going to have like everybody kind of pick up a graphic novel and stuff, you want to keep it in a certain price range. So throwing this together at the size of like a $70 omnibus is not. <laughs> but um, why begin why begin with that, especially since you're not coming back to it until pretty much near the climax of the story? Yeah, I I would say, number one, it's it's a gut punch, I think. While book one is pretty mild, as I, I've said, I guess, two other times, sorry for repeating myself, you are getting an idea of what this is actually going to be like. I think there, that it's not going to be all frills and, and none of the the blood and uh, sweat that these people had to go through. So I think you get an idea there. It gives us a hint of where it's going. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the promise that there will be three, you know, when reading it, I don't know if I necessarily – when I – well, when the first two were bought for me, I don't know if I necessarily thought that a third was going to come out. And I think it is also, it gives you an idea of what March means because the title, I think, you know, it could be interpreted in a couple ways and just, you know, as a noun or as a verb, of course. And, but here you see them action oriented. So using March as uh, we are marching as a verb, uh, but it can also double, you know, as that now, like this is a really important march that we're conducting. Um, so I, I think it gets to the heart of what this book is about and then points us to the future. Yeah. And, and just talking about the name of the book, March, just to, to stay on that since, since you brought it up. Um, I, I also thought of, of how like there's myriad meanings for this word and started writing down like what could it mean you know when I was taking notes and uh, based on that question and you're right that you know this is the, this is the thing that's going to happen I was also I also wrote the the I also wrote down phrases like march and step march and time march to your sure. own beat yeah which has different connotations throughout you know the idea of the the back and forth between the various organizations with this in the civil rights movement and each of them you know one wanting them to kind of all march together in a sense and then others breaking off and doing their own thing and then you have the government wanting people to essentially you know uh you know the federal government saying hey why don't you back like march to arby you know in in that sort of metaphoric sense and then i wrote down um a march just if you think of a march the beat of a march which is one two one two it right. is slow it is steady it is constant i suppose you can speed up a march as much as you can speed up any other rhythm but we think of marching in time as something that's constant 
and it's steady. And if you really think of how many years the civil rights movement, as we talk about it in the context of history, of 20th century history, how many years that was taking place, it really, and, and is still going on in many ways, um, that is a slow, steady, and it's not always steady because there are, you know, times when the civil rights movement is like heats up and things go fast and there are things that are slow, but it's a slow, grueling endurance, you know, because like the, the time, if we just look at the scope of the time of the book, 1953, 1954 is Brown versus the Board of Education. So like the case was probably argued in 53, it was decide in 54 i probably could look up the dates but decide in 54 the voting rights act isn't signed until 1965 that's 11 years and even then you know king's assassinated in 68 and you go through the 60s and 70s and there are and there are still issues today and if you look at other civil rights movements in the country like the gay rights movement for instance um really does date it date, date itself back to uh stonewall in 1969 and you have nearly 50 years of varying issues because you have just the right to be recognized and the right to not be being, you know, be beaten to death or punished or jailed or whatever for your, you know, for being gay. And then you have, um, then you have AIDS and you have uh, don't ask, don't tell, you have marriage equality, like all these other things, but you're talking about a movement that started nearly 50 years ago. So like it's these movements like this, it's the, the idea of March is, is a, I think a really, really appropriate word. But if we go back to the, if we go back to the, the beginning, we talked about March. What about this, this scene where he's a kid and he's killing the chicken? Why include that? <laughs> well, first of all, the father looks horrifying. It's like in a horror film. He's got his little axe coming down and everything, and he's got yeah. that really scary look on his face. It's, it's drawn scary. really well. <laughs> it is drawn very well and, and darkly because it's scary. Well, I, I guess, you know, there's one where you can read in really far, and there's one, you know, superficially. I think we get a sense of who John is from this little anecdote. You know, I think... You learn, I felt, felt like I learned most about John from book one. His heart, his desires, things like that. And so I think here you start to see his care for living things and in being <laughs> so horrified at this rather i guess natural occurrence that you know you're going to kill an animal in order to feed your family i think we we almost are foreshadowing the fact that he is going to be on the side of peaceful resistance in the movement because i i think you see that his soul is is uh pretty sweet and and peaceful on the other side if you know if I were to read deeply into this, this almost reminds me of, as a weird role reversal, basically how white supremacists were treating black people at that time. Because they treated them as if they were animals, livestock, you know, just a thing rather than a human being. And, you know, they would uh, come down and, and kill them or do whatever they, not necessarily with a hatchet, but we certainly saw there were a couple murders uh, without. So you can almost see that 
in there as well, which is interesting. I don't know if that was the intent or not, but certainly, you know, the black people at that time were not being treated like actual people. Yeah, he, in fact, in in book two, on page 15 of book two, he points out the view that a number of white people had of of black people that, and he uses, actually does use that phrase, we were not human. Yeah. Uh, And this is something that when I've taught Knight, um, that I point out when we try to get to the bottom of, or we try, I try to get them to kind of get in their head of how could people in a country allow um, their government to round up all of these you know, Jews and gypsies and etc. Mm. And I and I point out how deeply. You know, anti-Semitism ran to the point where these people were seen as less than human. They're less than. They're sure. less than human. And there's just and 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 you. I always say, you know, I said this is going to sound horrible, and that it's it's meant to sound it, but like you're not hauling away the guy who lives down the street. It's just another Jew, and and that's kind of what the view that he is putting forth there is that we're not seen as human, and. Um, yeah, I basically had the same notes that you did, and I also mentioned something about like control and power, the ability to have this effect on somebody else's life and destiny. And if you do kind of switch the role, where you know you have this, um, you know, the, the power that would came from the racism that was driving a lot of these policies, these Jim Crow policies, and so it just um, maybe he has that kind of awakening there, in a sense, like he realizes that you know what what power people can hold, especially with, you know, like with weapons, violence and things. And, and I, I, you know, I I like your point about how this is where he really does choose to be nonviolent. Um, but he goes to school first and I find the narrative with his parents interesting because it's not what I would have expected. I think the cliche is always like my parents sacrificed so that I could go and I could have the better future that they never had. We've heard that before. Sure. But his now granted his parents they don't exactly punish him for sneaking out to go to school. You know? It's almost like they look the other well, way. Well, he gets a he gets a verbal yeah. he gets a tongue lashing. Yeah, he gets sure. a tongue lashing, but it's it's almost like that was superficial in a sense. I don't know. I just got the feeling that that was kind of superficial. And after a while, he just got away with it. And yet it logically makes sense if you're thinking about the atmosphere in which he's living, not his house, but his you know overall community in, in Alabama and the South, when he gets arrested for the first time. And his parents, they don't necessarily disown him, but they kind of turn him away mm. where they're like, you know the, the repu- reputation and 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 not in the what will people say sort of way that like you know some waspy suburbanite would like oh my god what are the neighbors gonna think like they do it in a way that's like they're legitimately fearful of if there will be repercussions on them and mm-hmm. he really doesn't mar- mention his parents very much after that incident what did you get what did you take from that about his relationship with his parents i think uh i mean they just wanted probably two different things i i think while 
anyone I, I think would want more representation and freedom you could already see how far his father had come because I think initially I guess he came from a sharecropping family yeah. is that what it was yeah, yeah it was a sharecropper yeah and so getting his own farm and, and things like that I think is obviously he really moved up in the world but fear is something that I think People are. Really, I mean, that's one of the themes I feel like for for some of these uh, characters here is just being driven by fear, and fear is also preventing them from joining the movement. So I think they more want to stay in the comfort zone that they have, and John wants to see his people uh, move forward instead of staying, I guess, in the past or say, being complacent. So I, I think it's just like two ideologies and it might just be one of those things where, you know, as youth, cause I feel like the next generation always has like a different viewpoint and perhaps they'll push us forward or perhaps they'll just have a completely different idea of what you know what we fought for that kind of thing and i think maybe he's he was just at that we need to push forward and and look at all this injustice why aren't you doing anything i don't know if he necessarily um i don't think he does uh have a uh a dis disregard is not what i'm looking for though um when you don't care if i oh, what's the word <laughs> Oh man! Uh, you know, with parents, uh -huh. you because <laughs> I, I feel like word, it, yeah. I know I feel like it happens mostly with parents, and you like a disrespect. Yeah, that's not the one I was looking for either. Mm. It's okay. I I'm sure it'll come to me some other time. Okay, but um. Ah, it's like the perfect word for this. I don't think he has disrespect for them or disregards where they've been, but I think they're just on two different levels. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And I think we, and, and perhaps that in some way foreshadows what we see later on, especially at the march in 63, where um, he's written this speech and it's really accusatory mm. and the people who are like basically slapping him on the wrist saying like you can't say that you can't say it are older yeah and there is a generational conflict within the civil rights movement between the student organization and you know king and everybody who's you know who, who's above them which sometimes you know they do work together but sometimes there is tension and it's something that that we we see but so perhaps this this conflict with his family also foreshadows that and sets that up in some way later on so we see that you know like you said we learn so much about him mm -hmm. and then we learn about the movement and his place in the movement so it's still personal in books two and three but like book one is the most personal of the three um because by the time we get to book two he's like really he's starting to really get into the thick of it he's in the the lunch counter protests um, which you pointed out, um, they've saved a lunch counter in one of the museums. It was the museum or was it the American history museum? It was the museum when I went, it was a temporary display though. So I don't believe that it's still there, okay. but yeah, the lunch counter and with three stools, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I want to say like the, 
I want to say they have the Smithsonian has the lunch counter from and I'm doing this off the top of my head a Woolworths in Greensboro North Carolina because it's the it's the subject of a very famous photograph of black students and black and white student protesters sitting at a counter while they're being yelled at jeered at and I want to say one white individual is like pouring I think a milkshake or something on somebody's head it's the photo is in my mind and and if and if I uh um if I get the chance I'll drop a bunch of stuff into the show notes Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these pictures, um, I led off with a snippet from his speech at the march in the mm-hmm. top of the episode, so I'll drop that in there as well, um, so that you guys, that everybody here can see um, what kind of some of the stuff we're talking about, because uh, some of them are pretty iconic images. The thing that there's the thing that got me was, um, and not not that I didn't realize that this was true, but um, I was looking at the violence that that happens in, especially in book two and in parts of book three. But I was like looking at like, and and the art affects this really well too. Nice looking white women, like in quotes, like you know somebody who who well no sure nice looking not Betty Homemaker yeah like not in a not in a like you know hey she's drawn to look like hot comic book hot way but mm-hmm. a nice looking woman who in any other context would just be like the nice woman serving you coffee at a diner or little kids. I'm not saying that little kids can't be evil because they certainly can, but um, but like the, the whole idea that okay, so this is a stark difference from um, you know the like your the typical Southern authority that you picture in this context, you know that's been parodied in movies, the Boss Hog, the Eustace T. Justice. Or um, or Pete uses P justice from the Cannonball Run, or uh, the the sheriff, the the warden in Cool Hand Luke. You know what we've got here is failure to communicate. You know, and uh, that respect my authority. You know the big fat hillbilly <coughs> sheriff. You know, and and you know get out of my town. You know, and and throwing epithets at you. And that those are in there because you have um, at least a couple who are mentioned. I think one's called like Bull Connor, which is totally. The a perfect name for a guy like that. And you have your George Wallace and who is notoriously racist. Um, but to me, the images that got me the most were of, you know, the white woman who was going to refuse service and even like yell the N word at them and be violent. Or Mm -hmm. there's one scene in book three on page 12 where it's like a little kid beating up other kids and the parents are like egging them on. And to me, that struck me probably cause I have a kid, but I mean, did that, did that have the same effect as you as it did on, on me or am I, uh, am I kind of off base with like, I find that a really powerful image that like women and children are, are being depicted in a way that's like hate filled. Yeah. Uh, first of all, the word I was thinking of was resent. Ah. I don't think that John Lewis resents his parents. But back to your question, that's what I was – yeah, I was like – as you were talking, just – And I agree that. with you. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and I think that was the purpose of it, to see how 
monstrous human beings are in general, as well as in particular looking at this timeline and history. And I think it also goes to show you that as readers, we could very much be one of those people. And basically, you know, saying that it wasn't all just people dressed up in white cloaks with pointy little hats, or it wasn't all corrupt, well, I'll, I'll call them corrupt, uh, officers of the law. It was average, everyday people that were pretty hateful and doing hateful things. Yeah, and um, what I the thing that this this will be a nice segue into these are these are things that are hinted at in the beginning like when he's a kid he sees it on some level in that trip up to buffalo because they can't stop in certain places so it's it's not out it's not overt it's kind of below the surface for a little while but excuse me uh but they get trained to protest and this is something mm-hmm. that I think this is something before I read this, I had never realized. Yet at the same time when I was reading, I was like, well, of course they trained them how to do this. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm like, so we see um, there's two things that, that two tactics that I found um, just fascinating. One was the training they went through for the sit-ins and the freedom rides. The idea that... Um, you just had to keep taking it and keep taking it and keep taking it. And then, and this confused me actually a little bit, not posting bail. So, and you had, when we were talking about this, and I think it was, we might have been texting about it or something. Some things struck you about the scene where they were being trained, um, about like, you know, how they were being trained to interact with uh, the people. Um, do you remember what that was? Um, well, I think I had two ideas. One of them was just about nonviolence in general. Okay. And does that, I think it was something like, oh, actually, I have it written down in my notebook. Let me pull it out. March. Uh, How does nonviolent resistance, that one? work to bring about social change and does it how does it compare to other methods yeah, yeah, yeah. alternative okay alternatively it was about um do you feel that love of one's attacker is a requirement for effective nonviolent resistance and are there any signs of it in the book mm-hmm. those are my two i think about nonviolence there i i don't know you're gonna have to i guess well, I just, state and how did you want that brought in well um i was I'm going to hold off on Malcolm X okay. and some of that because I, I want to I want to get to that kind of – I feel like that's almost like a separate discussion we can have, a smaller discussion we can have. I, I The nonviolent resistance, um, they're, the way they're portraying it is something that I know – this is what you were – I was trying to kind of lead you in um, and I didn't do a very good jo- job of it. Um, the, uh, there's a scene where they're training them and they're yelling slurs oh, sure. at each other. Yep. And I knew I know I one of us brought it up in a in a side conversation. It's so I point. did I did it because I said that it'd be really interesting to do it in a school situation. Yes, okay, that's what uh, it but was. then I also said that, but I number one would get fired, and number two would turn out like the Yale experiment mm-hmm. probably. Yeah. 
But I found that interesting, too, because I was like, yeah, of course they were. I also found, just from an organization standpoint, the planning that went into things like the Civil Rights March, you know, like, again, these are events that we know. We know from, because we've seen the I Have a Dream speech footage, and we know of the March on Washington, but they get into certain scenes where they're talking to Kennedy about it, and Kennedy's like, well, I don't want you to do it, and they're like, well, we're going to do it anyway. And he eventually says, okay, go ahead. And not that they needed his approval, but it was just the idea of how do you, like, again, how do you get that many people in that place? It just doesn't happen, like, overnight. There's months and months of planning and speakers and and things like that. And um, and, and then all this train, and, and that's only one thing. I love that he gets down to that grassroots on the ground where he was the training of how are you going to handle this how are you going to handle getting on a bus that could be pulled over and you could be dragged out and beaten and thrown in jail i didn't understand the bail thing did you do you understand why not posting bail was a tactic I feel like I do, but okay, I'm concerned ahead. that you. <laughs> I, I think I, I like do. I, I think do, I do, but I can't articulate it. It's about basically not submitting to the system, because if their whole thing is saying that the system is broken, uh, and then they need to prove that they need to uh, be strong in that and continue to show that the system is broken and never bow down to it in any aspect. So if they're saying that the laws and equality are broken and it needs to be fixed, then why would they pay money to a law that they think is, you know, with the other thing? And so that, that would defeat their purpose. So I think just across the board, they're saying like, we're not going to, um, give money to a system that's broken. That's what I thought. And you articulated that's that's what I was thinking too. And but okay. you articulated a lot better than I could because I really couldn't get it out. But it does bring up something <laughs> that that I had in a um, that I had in a question, which was uh, that speaking of systems, politics, mm. and and the politics of the time, specifically Washington politics, which um, now. Well, we live we live in Charlottesville, which is a couple of hours from D.C. But if you live within the Beltway, the Beltway provides this nice little bubble that, unless things are absolutely like catastrophic, like Watergate level catastrophic in Washington, Clinton Lewinsky scandal, like if if things in Washington are leaking out to the point into like local news and things where like it's absolutely crazy. A lot of people in your average American town are not going to be on the inside of what Johnson's strategy is for 64, you know, stuff like that. And, um, and so, but Washington is its own beast. It's like this, this thing where people are capitulating to one another and compromising. And you see that. Um, and then you had brought up because you had you and I had an exchange over text, and it was so long ago that I have to scroll back way too far because we text each other too much. And um, how, how how dare we be friends? I know, God. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but no, I was just I, I had meant to I had meant to go and jot it down. But you were asking me like you know what the what the deal was with Goldwater, and he was yeah. fretting over that. And yeah. the thing I just just to summarize, it's. Um, 
sorry, I'm, just, I'm making sure I have my notes. Okay. Um, so Johnson, Lyndon, LBJ is from Texas. Um, and Kennedy essentially picked LBJ as his running mate because he needed the South to win the election. Um, if we remember, Kennedy, Kennedy Nixon was one of the closest elections of the of the last hundred years. It was incredibly close. The only election that I can compare it to that was closer than that in terms of electoral votes, probably Bush Gore, because Bush Gore went to the Supreme because of everything that happened. Like it was such a slim margin. Kennedy Nixon was the same way, and Kennedy needed Johnson, and Johnson was a Texan. Johnson was a very domineering sort of personality. And um, they were hesitant. They, they Even Lewis and John in the book um, says at LBJ, like, they were hesitant about all this because of the fact that, you know, do you trust this guy? You know? Like, Kennedy, on some level, I guess they trusted because he was Northeastern liberal. He was young. You know, of what Camelot, rep, what Kennedy and Camelot mm, represented to the country. Right. And But yeah. Johnson comes in. Johnson... And, and, you know, so, so, um, and you see how Washington, maybe it's not Johnson, maybe it's RFK, maybe it's JFK, even then, it's almost like they're trying to tell these people, okay, calm down, calm down, calm down. And be not because, partially because out of, you know, systemic racism and all the other things, but also partially from these sort of, Washington politics practical standpoint of us, how is this going to make us look? How is this going to hurt our chances here and there? Like, you know, we have to spin this right. All of that political BS that you see in in, in the everyday in Washington politics. And um, I think that's where you have this this clash between this ideology of we're doing this because it's right, because there is an injustice here and the politics behind it, you know, of people who agree with you, but at the same time, like, well, we got to do this within the system that we have, and that's where the system is, you know, flawed. Some would even say broken. And, um, you know, the, the Goldwater wins the pretty much the South, and this is where you have, like I said in the summary, um, I don't remember, maybe Clinton won a few Southern states, um, because, you know, back when he was elected, but for the most part, this, the South has been Republican since 64. And uh, and and the Democratic National Committee does not have a strategy to get back, and it really starts with Johnson. Uh, this didn't end Johnson's political career. Vietnam ended Johnson's political career. He wouldn't run in 68. He announced that he wasn't going to seek the nomination, mainly uh, due to the fact that he was under so much pressure because of the war. Uh, going as badly as it was to, you know, uh, I, they really were going to primary him out of there anyway. So he he bowed out gracefully, and then the the '68 Democratic Convention was a mess, and we get Nixon and everything. But but um, I just I found that interesting as somebody who's a political science who has a political science degree. Um, I found that that interesting as well. Uh, but moving on to another question and getting back to this. Um, Getting back to, to like who was running the movement, um, I did have a question about faith and church-based organizations in the civil rights movement, especially in light of the number of such organizations that have been 
or have been accused of trying to deny civil rights to portions of the country over the last like 35 to 40 years. Um, and then you also have the Governor Barrett speech on page 114. So, um, and that goes into your question about the feeling of love of one attacker is a requirement for effective nonviolent resistance. But uh, can we speak to the fact that a lot of these organizations were based out of out of churches and there's there uh, um should we focus more on organizations in our studies of things like the civil rights movement do we focus too much on individuals and set aside the fact that you know without churches without student organizations you wouldn't have had the laws that were passed i think we do focus a lot on the individual um and that seems to happen more and more, especially with uh, biographic films that are coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I there's there seems to be an inherent I don't want to say problem, but there's something strange about this because in as if as if John Lewis wanted to be a little careful about I guess his audience in consideration of them. Uh, not necessarily like leave God out of it, but we see very much in the in the beginning in book one uh, his his dedication I think to the faith and and wanting to be a pastor. But then there seems to be some strange transition. I'm not really sure when this happens, where he's more he talks about being led by the spirit of history rather than God mm-hmm. flowing through them and and him being sort of the champion of of them and pushing them forward. So I think I, I guess it just didn't happen in this particular medium that we, we could have focused on uh, the church based groups. But, you know, I, I'm thinking back to all this because there it does have a religious foundation. Mm-hmm. The fact that we're thinking about and even, you know, we can say Christianity, but we also know that, you know, Malcolm X had more of uh, an Islamic, yeah, right, uh, yes. yeah, yeah, basis. And then you also have uh, Mahatma Gandhi. So there's a very spiritual aspect in it. And I feel like all of the church scenes that I saw, uh, it's not – the people weren't necessarily preaching about God and Jesus Christ. They were pre- – you know, they were preaching about the movement. It just happened to be in a church setting. So there was sort of a that, – that's from my memory. I'd have to go back and see all those scenes and everything. But it seems like there's some sort of uh, discrepancy there but I would like to see I would like to see this um, and you know more of the 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 well you know the back of book two dear me uh, is one of my favorite images actually favorite and least favorite I should say and it does occur um, in this particular book but you've got the stained glass um, window of of a church and Jesus's face is blown out because Presumably, a uh, a brick went through it because they were. I remember they were having an organization there. So I mean, there's a lot of like symbolism right there, and the fact that uh, I mean, I guess it's just so troublesome potentially to get into because you're very much condemning the other people. And I guess maybe John Lewis didn't want to be about that, even though I mean, I think we do have to condemn them, but you'd be basically like damning them to hell um, for what, for what they've been doing because they weren't following, you know, the first commandment there. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wish we would have seen more of this and, and his faith pushing forward and, 
the church and its influence, but I think because it's by him and it's focusing more on the individuals, it's hard to do that. Yeah, and I also think that because he was so he was more involved with SNCC than say the SCLC, mm. that you do get the student protest side of things as opposed to if this were focused on King, perhaps it may have, or the members of the SCLC, it may have been more faith based, and you you may have seen more of that that side of it as well. Um, I do know, and again, I'm doing this off the top of my head, I want to say that one of the reasons they kept meeting in churches is because it was one of the places they could meet. Like, sure. You know, like, like, you know, just the idea that people were, you know, the, the authorities as they were, were running around looking for them. You yeah. Know? And, and so that's why they were bombing these churches and stuff. But yeah, I, I agree with you in that um, it's, but I think, like I said, you get this, I just, I think it, I think we need to, and this is just me getting my soapbox about like, you know, teaching this, not the novel, but the civil rights movement. Yeah. I think we do need to mention, and we do need to focus on the fact that there were, the the law, a number of the people who were key figures in the civil rights movement were, for lack of a better word, clergy, mm-hmm. and were people of faith, because A, the there, there is way too much because of the sensationalism involved, and because of the prominence. There are many organiz- there are many faith organizations who, in in our current political climate, who are perpetuating laws that discriminate. You know, in some way or another. I'm not going to get into specifics, but we do. They are often. You know, there there is there is a side of Christianity that is that is not what. You know, as that I was when I was growing up, thinking, okay, this doesn't look like this would be, you know, the whole idea of love thy neighbor. This is not what I'm seeing from from what I'm seeing, you know, from like certain certain figures who shall remain nameless, um, and, and are on TV. Uh, but you know, of the of the quote Christian faith. But at the same time, there are so many other charities and organizations, and even political organizations that are working toward you know, and, and in history have worked towards civil rights and they do get kind of outshone by just the individuals who are in them. Um, and you had a great question. Uh, I, let's come back to that question. Um, do you feel that the love of one's attacker is a requirement for effective nonviolent resistance? And are there any signs of it in the book? Cause I thought that was a great question. I didn't want to I didn't want to uh, lose it. Yeah. So what, what's your thought on that? I think I would say yes, uh, mainly because it's the idea of loving one's enemy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the most difficult thing that one can do. But in doing that, uh, they're able to accomplish so much, and I think it also puts in per- into perspective, though you have to be careful because you don't want to be prideful about it, like, hey, 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 I'm loving you, but you're a terrible person, uh, you know, but it, it puts into perspective how bad those people really were acting because they, I felt like they were showing love and kindness, especially um, they treated 
the people on the other side of the counter really well uh, with respect and dignity and ma'am and things like that and would say thank you and either if they were walking out or not. But you can't, yeah, you can't go in, I think, with anything other than love because apathy or like neutrality, it's just not going to work. And you have to have, because hate is powerful, but mm-hmm. I think love is even more powerful. And there's no other way, I think, that you can survive the things that they were put through if you don't have, you know, love. And, and I think that this love was, again, getting back to this religious idea that I think was a bit lost in translation somehow here. But, you know, clearly God and Jesus were on their side because these people, even though they endured a lot, but uh, being able to sit there and go through all that, I mean, they were given some, some godly strength there. Yeah, and I said the same thing, and, and, and the frustrating thing about it is how difficult it can be to maintain. And you see that in a couple of things where some of the students, they, they want to lash out. They want to sure. come back. They, you know, and yep, and, yep. and the, the, the patience, the, the training, again... Um, the other thing, and, and the other thing that's frustrating, is how you is how um, the other side that is using the violence against you and using the violence against you and using the violence against you is waiting with bated breath for the first person to throw a rock because then they can set up a false equivalence. Sure. You know, like you can, you could be, you know, in, in this case, um, you know, it's like you can be this white supremacist who is beating down somebody of color and some, and, you know, and, and among an angry mob of people who are doing that. And that one picture of a black person punching somebody and look, they're just as bad as us when it's like completely disproportionate but that's what they're waiting for and they know that too they know that because that's that's a tactic that you know that that with this nonviolent protest they're probably training one another to do it it's like you know and and i, I do want to get into the two um two like, key figures that are highlighted here one is dr king and the other one is malcolm x and malcolm x um was a proponent of resistance. I may be getting the phrase wrong, but I believe it was like resistance by any means necessary. So that he was not, he was, he did not, I don't, I don't want to say he was like, okay, I'm I'm trying to phrase this in a way, and I want to say like, you know, Malcolm X was the violent one. He wasn't, but he was not against the idea of violence. And um, I just, I was, you know, what do you, um, what do you think of, well, let's start with Malcolm X and some, some bring him up. what do you think of the use and portrayal of Malcolm X in this, in this book? Because I didn't, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about him. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be able to give you any historical things, except that he's Magneto in the X-Men stories. <laughs> um. <laughs> what do you, what do you, uh, he is, no, it's true, but what do you, yeah, what yeah. does Lewis want us to think about him? It's probably the best way to put it. I, I almost feel like it's a road not taken, and not necessarily one that Lewis regrets not going down, but even, I mean, it's very artful, I think, in the way fate or God uh, prevented those two people 
from interacting in certain times. I remember that mm -hmm. there was a scene where Lewis was checking in and either Malcolm was checking in or he was checking out. And I don't think they spoke or anything, but I think that may have been the first time he saw him in person. And then seeing him over in Africa, like these weird little, you know, these uh, moments, these vignettes between the two of them. And I think it's it's very much a road not taken because that could have been the other side of uh, what Lewis did. And But instead, as we see with the chickens, we see that he is uh, a peaceful, I feel like he's a peaceful soul. And so he's more in line with Malcolm, I'm sorry, he's more in line with King and Mahatma Gandhi's idea of peaceful resistance rather than Malcolm X, which uh, could get aggressive potentially. But I like that they dialogue. And I, I like how he entertains that dialogue, though, you know, in the end, he says that I, I, you know, I could never really get on board with that. But I think he just represents the other side of the issue. But it makes sense that they didn't go too much into it. Yeah. I think enough, enough that was necessary to give the reader an idea of what he was all about. But that I think that would have obfuscated the story uh, to give like lots of Malcolm X stuff because John Lewis isn't there. He's not in that camp. So you need to keep him in the camp that he's in and, and give him, give more details about the peaceful resistance side of it. I agree. And I, I also think it does still contribute to kind of this full picture of the civil rights movement that we're getting and how diverse it was in its views and its tactics. Cause I, I want to talk about Martin Luther King in a minute. Um, and you're right. Like, he was not he met Malcolm X a few times and he's significant enough of a figure to not ignore in this story. You know, um it's it's significant to point out like that he's pointing out that he wasn't at the meeting about the march, but he did meet him a couple of times and he had a significant conversation with him. And um it makes me want to read more about him, to be honest with you, because and and I'll and I'll I'll use this as a segue to 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 my question about um, you know Dr. King, in that growing up in a suburb that was literally ninety nine percent white, you get you learn about the civil rights movement, social studies class at, in in various grades, and you you get some more information as you get into high school. But the view that you get, and it's not, it's not like outwardly stated, it's more actually more subtle, but there's this subtle thread running through it that Malcolm X somehow was the wrong way to go. Because possibly because it scares white people, you know, like that whole idea that, you know, you know, we're going to use violence to get what we want or, you know, more resist or more violent or aggressive resistance. And it's serious. So we never learned very much. I, you know, we, I learned bits and pieces of things about Malcolm X in history class, but not, not much beyond like, you know, he had views that were kind of opposite of Dr. King and Martin Luther King, like until I read some of his actual writings when I took that course in college, I could tell you two things. I could tell you three things. I could tell you um, the I Have a Dream speech. I could tell you, uh, you know, the fact that he was assassinated. I could tell you nonviolent resistance. And that's it. 
And it's that way we have of boiling historical figures down to like two or three facts, but that they almost it's almost this kind of lionization of King as this like this watering down of him in in my mind. It's like, you know, that that he has to be almost this perfect character of nonviolent aggression passive aggressive not passive aggressive passive resistance and that's exactly how you're supposed to protest, which is ironic considering you're studying the history of a country that was founded on a violent protest. And I don't know. Like, I get into this and I see a man who was flawed. And to me, that's more important. You know? I mean, what, how do you think he's portrayed? Like, did you learn anything about King by reading this? or? Um... Yeah, I guess I had to think about it a little bit. Yeah, I was surprised with uh, duplicity is not the right word. That scene that I cracked up in, I was actually really shocked in as well because I thought, yikes, uh, basically people are calling you out and, and you're not going to act on it. Like him playing safe, uh, potentially. I mean, he did say that he, he wants to choose his cavalry. Um, yeah, I, I think... I don't appreciate when people see I don't really like biopics because I feel like oftentimes they are almost put up on idol status Mm -hmm. and uh, I I don't I just don't like that and um, you know he's not a perfect person oh he he did have an affair Mm -hmm. that was not brought up in here but I I do think that it is good to see uh, that he is fallible and um but on the other side i'm concerned because i feel like john lewis seems pretty perfect in this adaptation here like i can't really see anything wrong with him he he doesn't seem to make any mistakes you know there's that cute anecdote with uh was it debbie reynolds dances mm-hmm. with him or it was surely the thing. Yeah. and uh you know he didn't do anything or whatever um it, it, he's very clean cut it seems so that also makes me a little distrustful uh, maybe he really is that way and that'd be amazing but no it was good to see king i think in in this light however uh on the one side you see him as a fallible human being on the other side you're like Ooh, you know, did he, should he have been a leader because he was disagreeing with some people and you're on the side of John Lewis and you, because it's his POV and you are going with his ideas. So when King runs up against it or they don't necessarily agree, you want to take the side of John. So it almost pulls down the authority or uh, I guess the impact that King had. Anyways, for me. It knocks him off a pedestal a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's the 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 idolization. Sure. Through something like a biopic and the putting uh, putting a leader like him on a pedestal. Yeah. Um, maybe he's going in assuming that we know a lot about King. Mm. That like, cause you you hear the name. I mean, the name is on streets. It's a holiday. Like, it's hard at the age of reading this to not know who you're talking about. You know, it's. It's it's an ingrained figure, so it, maybe he's he's. I don't think he's being like a complete iconoclast, but mm-hmm. I think he's showing the flaws. That is, that does bring up the question of like you know how much do you trust your narrator? But then again, there is a certain amount of research that obviously went into this, and a lot of the incidents that he's talking about are well documented too. 
like the actual protests and the 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 terrorism against sure the I trust him on that I trust him on that too but I agree with you I think there are points where it doesn't seem like he makes many if at all any mistakes yeah. or has a moment of weakness in one way or another but I almost am willing to let that slide in because of everything else that's in here like that's the that's like the one flaw of the book you know and I'm like okay I'm willing to overlook that flaw to a certain extent because of everything else that I found power, powerful within the story do you agree with that or you, am I able to overlook his perfection? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, yeah. What about the the just really quickly the, the framing uh, the framing device? And then we'll kind of look and we'll look toward the future a little bit because um, then I'll get to the framing device. So if we go like one of the last questions I had put on there was just kind of projecting ahead, and then we're go, we're just going to get into uh, some of the more like technical aspects of the story and and how it's told and how it's drawn. Uh, this ends in 1965, like. With the exception of the framing device, which is 2009, it ends in 1965 with the passing of the Voting Rights Act. Now, there's a lot that happens um, between 1965 and even like 1980. You have uh, Vietnam, and Vietnam became a real central part, I know, of King's movement. Uh, right around the time he was assassinated, because disproportionately. The people being drafted and sent to Vietnam were poor, uh, and many of them were minorities, and there were a lot of people who were rich and white who were able to get out of the war. And he was protesting that, and you heard that in other movements. You heard that in songs like uh, like What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Um, you have the rise of Bobby Seale and the Black Panthers in the late 60s. You have into the 70s and in the 80s, you have... Um, you know, you have in the late 60s of riots in like Watts and Detroit. And um, so it doesn't necessarily end here. And it's almost like you, you want to kind of keep looking at heads. But it gets the interesting thing that's always uh, that's always struck me about the civil rights movement and et cetera after 1965 is how muddied it gets and how um, and 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 like do we lose momentum and things uh, to the point where like you can even go as far as the 90s and the LA riots and the OJ Simpson trial and a lot of these events that stem back to systemic treatment of like the black community in certain cities over time so i just always thought, I, like i started projecting ahead as the thing was wrapping up you know like where, where you know where we go from here and then we get to 2009 and 2009 is the election of Barack Obama, who was the first black president of the United States. And um, the question we had was, does it represent the fulfillment of Dr. King's dream, or is it merely a step? Can I ask you a question about the Vietnam War before I answer? Sure. Okay. Because you're doing... In country. Yes, as a little pimp for your own show there. Yeah. Uh, how were – because I, I actually enjoy um, – re- well, yeah, a little bit reading as well as watching about the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And how well were troops and things – integrated is not the right word. But w- were they on the equal? Like, um, I, I mean, was there a sense of equality over there? I will – I don't know um... – Numbers wise, I can't tell you like how if it was disproportionately white, black, or whatever. I know that the units themselves were integrated. 
So how were people treated though? There was a lot of there depending on where you were and and I've read it in the comic that I've in the comic that I've been covering and some books in here and there um there were some there were there were a number of racial tensions within um within units within platoons uh and in some cases it was a little more uh harmonious okay. but uh, but there were there were cases of the um racial tensions within the domestic united states bleeding into units in the armed forces that were going over into the war mm, okay and, and yeah. Drugs, and I'm not blaming. I'm not saying drugs of minorities in the same sense. Like drugs all around did not help either. In Vietnam, yeah, there were there was you know the drug. They're not not again. Not all. This is not all like minority troops or anything. But there was there was a significant amount of like you know drug trafficking and, and use and things like that. And you know because you also have that's the thing. It's like you know the you have the Vietnam War. You have the civil rights movement. You also have the counterculture. And the counterculture was heavy with drug use of LSD pot and then eventually heroin and things like that. And that could muddy things and complicate things, too. So it was almost like in 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 certain sections of the servicemen in Vietnam were almost like a microcosm of what was happening back home in, in some regards. Why on earth would you desire to get high in a war-torn country? Because it helps take your mind off the fact that the next time you go out, you might not come back. Okay, because I can accept that. I'm not saying they'd be high it's like just in seems the field. Dangerous. No, oh, okay. Not to be well, high in the field, but they'd yeah. be, you know, they'd be go back to, you know, they go back sure. to the base or, or wherever, okay. and you know, okay. smoke up. I I feel like I haven't watched an adaptation that's gone into that. Maybe I'm not right, watching the right one. Uh, platoon. Oh, has I have seen. Okay. Um, there's a little bit of it in Apocalypse Now. Um, uh, Platoon too. has a, a good scene of of that. Okay, I guess I I didn't pay attention. Uh, well, I guess there goes my cheery thought that maybe the Vietnam War had a positive aspect and that you know it was able to bring whites and blacks together. But I guess that was only I, part. I, I will of the say trip. I think on some level it for a number of troops it was though. Okay. You know well, I would yeah. just say but I will say that it was not. It was not one or the other. The the, the like yeah. I said, things boiled over from home. Yeah, of course. Well, your initial question before I cut you off was, of course, is is the inauguration of Obama a step or a or the fulfillment of Doctor? Yeah, Richard. the fulfillment of uh, the dream, and I would say that's a step. I would say that's a step, and that's mainly looking. <laughs> where we are now. Uh, this is 2017. And we live in Charlottesville. Unfortunately, yes. Hashtag Charlottesville. So I think, um, I, you know, one of the themes is how far we've come in this particular this particular novel. And, you know, to go from the beginning with the actual bridge scene to, you know, a black man being inaugurated and, and everyone uh, being there and, and uh, cheering him on for the most part. Uh, my goodness, look at that dichotomy. Mm -hmm. But it's not the end, and, and it can't be the end, because if that's all that they were working for to get a black man in office, um, I, I, I think that they – well, that's not what they were working for, basically. So uh, I, I think it's a step. I think that they've obviously – 
moved forward greatly. You know, you've got equality and, and voting and our first black president. But as we can see from recent events, uh, there's still racism and people still believe that uh, black people are not human beings. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're still we still are in need of progression. But I think uh, Obama's term in office uh, and just that scene right there and just him being nominated or run, you know, that was mm-hmm. huge. Yeah, just like Hillary being the first uh, female to, to be nominated potentially uh, was a huge leap. Yeah. And um, I mean, nothing. <laughs> I, there are times when I just look at the media and I'm like, really? And one of the times was back in 2009 where like op-ed writers and publications like the Washington Post started using this phrase post-racial. Like, but, no, no. It's like, like post-feminism. Yeah, that it's just exist. like, no, 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 that doesn't exist. Yeah. And you just want to say it because you're trying to get, I mean, granted, this is 2009, so even Twitter existed. It wasn't on the level that we have now, but it's like you're trying to get a hashtag going, right? So... Oh. Yeah, you know, it just it's just like stop trying to create, uh, stop trying to make fetch happen. I mean, just it and 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 report or editorialize or opinion or, or pontificate here on the actual like what's going on here. And it was a step in the right direction, but you're right. And and on some level, this probably does serve as a reminder of like how far we've come, but also how much work we still need to do. You know, um, when you have because you you still it's it there will always be resistance to progress and there will always be, you know, um, and there will always be, be a fight. And, uh, and I think it was even King was crit- critical of like, you know, the complacent moderate, you know, the, the one who has the kind of, that kind of privilege to kind of sit back and think, well, everything's fine now. Right. You know, and, and not realize, no, we have, you, you have to pay attention. And, and do it. So I think, I think you're right. I think it was a step of a, a, a leap but certainly not um, not the fulfillment, the total fulfillment of uh, that. And you wonder, you do wonder, and this is, I guess, this is just a, a discussion for another day, like, you know, will that ever be fulfilled or is that just kind of the, the platonic ideal, you know, of the dream? Right. So um, to, to kind of wrap us up here, just to talk a little bit about the structure of the story. And we, we did talk about the story in itself. I mean, there's not much, but, but you had a, we have a question of like, book one has a, the whole thing has the framing device of the inauguration. And book one's framing device is this conversation he's having, talking to these two little kids whose mom brought them in to meet their congressman. But then he doesn't use it through the rest. They leave the office and then he goes into, um, you know, just basically narrating it and reflecting as he goes. Um, would book one change significantly if Lewis wasn't narrating and why, to the mother and the sons in book one? And why doesn't he keep doing the narration through book two and three? I don't think it would have changed. I think, uh... And especially because two and three don't have this narration. I think it's a way for him potentially to relate to the children that he's talking to. But it wouldn't make sense to carry the narration over because all of a sudden he'd be talking about these really violent events to the children. And uh, while they should be aware of their, their past and their history, I don't think their mother <laughs> would think that they're ready to hear about these horrible, horrible things. Mm-hmm. Um, that they went through. But, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes it took me out of it a little bit because 
the Obama flashes happen very infrequently, but through this, uh, I felt like I was taken out because we'd have a nice little consistent thing. He's narrating, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden we would have these kids, and they would talk about something, or they would make some sort of comment, and their mother would um, discipline them. So mm -hmm. it almost took me out of it a little bit, and I think that uh, I would almost prefer that maybe – uh, they they not happen. I also wonder, like, could I have just wandered into his office? I mean, he doesn't even know these people, right? They just like wander in because they want to see him. Uh, yeah, I'm. Gonna... <laughs> could I just come in off the street and and ask to see Congressman John Lewis? You... And be okay. I actually believe that in theory you can. In theory, oh, wow. you can get in touch with your congressman. Although I don't okay. know why I want to get in touch with my congressman. They're calling <laughs> a goober. But um, ugh. But if you wanted to go to Congressman Lewis's office, you'd have to just talk to a secretary or somebody at the office and say, you know, if you showed up at the door and say, like, is he, in, you know, if let's say you were a constituent, you uh, could go and you could say, is he in? Is this something? And they probably tell you to make an appointment or something. But, you know, they sure. let's just say that, like, for to no prize it, I was like, you know, like they she knew somebody who got them in the office that day. Okay. And, um, what I think the one good thing it does serve is that it's a catalyst for the deeper reflection that happens in the other two books. And I'm glad the children part of the framing device ends before the end of book one. And then it's just kind of yeah. like, wow, this really made me think of everything. Mm -hmm. Because he probably would have, in, in the sense, and I'm just talking about kind of John Lewis, the character in the book here, probably would have thought about it anyway. But... Now he's thinking about even more and not letting it kind of get pushed aside as he gets swept up in the festivities of um, the inauguration. Mm. Swept up in the grandeur and everything. It's like everything happens. It's like, oh, my God. And, and, and here it's just on his mind a little more. So it provides the catalyst for that part of the plot to get going. Um, and we... We and that way we can use the whole day as a framing device, and I think the framing device is very effective through the rest of the graphic novel. I'm glad they didn't completely abandon it, um, especially uh, it. Each book ends with a cliffhanger, except for part three, obviously. Um, and it was, and I want to say we were asking why that was done, and I want to say it was done because they knew they were going to publish it in three volumes, and they needed something to end on to make you want to keep going you know a classic storytelling format but in in book one the the one of the Chekhov's guns of the book of of March is this phone call that he gets at the end of the toward the end of book one where his cell phone is ringing and that's the call from Teddy Kennedy mm. at the end of that he gets at the end of the book and sure. honestly I read that on purpose because it was really touching you know like what do you mean you read that on purpose? I, I read it verbatim on purpose in the, from the book oh, oh, synopsis. Oh, okay. Because to me, that was really touching. Like, oh, yeah. You know, Teddy, uh, say what you will about Ted Kennedy and, and, and his various political scandals over the time and everything, but he was a senator for like 40 years or something before he finally retired and he passed away. And, you know, you're talking about a guy who lost both of his brothers, and he, and he was there, and, and he calls him, and it's just like... It's a it's a tender moment that's not too saccharine, mm. and I was just like I, I really liked how that was used that way. 
Um, yeah, and then at the end of two, just, yeah. yeah, at the end of one, you've got that cell phone that's vibrating, and then at the end of two, you've got the the cordless phone. Well, it's not cordless. The phone that's been cut from the phone booth that the man was in yeah. in front of the 16th Baptist Church. So there's nice little imagery there. Uh, what is a Chekhov's gun? Chekhov's gun is a a rule of, of drama named after. Um, Anton Chekhov, the Russian playwright, not Pavel, the navigator of the Starship Enterprise, uh, that if a gun appears in Act 1, by the end of the play, the gun shall be fired. I see. And that's what the that's what the call is. And it's just, sure. it's, it's a little subtle little seed, but it's like, what was that call? There, that's the call from the beginning. I, I liked that touch, as is mm-hmm. from a storytelling perspective. Mm-hmm. What about the... Yeah, oh, yeah. No, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's just like when that woman is in his office that he knows, and you only catch part of the story, which you might not even necessarily have to read, uh, given the lettering and the bubbles, but she's talking about how he hid underneath and then ran out to catch the bus. And that means nothing, un- it means nothing to you until you're actually reading mm-hmm. that section where he hides under and everything. So yeah. there are some deft deft moves, but you also have to be careful to catch them and then potentially go back and reread sections. Yeah, now uh, let's talk a little bit about the art and let's talk about the actual lettering as well. Let's do it. Uh, Alright, so um, is this art too cartoony? Is it realistic enough? What do you what's your, what's your take on that? I think that it's realistic enough. I think it might get cartoony just with like sometimes I'm trying to think before the speech that one guy was yelling at him mm-hmm. um, that he needed to change something. Yes. Um, and so sometimes with uh, – I'm trying to think. I know that there's probably a cartoon when this happens. Actually, I think it might be Spirited Away, which people probably don't aren't aware of who listen to this show but you know if someone gets angry and they're yelling like all of a sudden their facial features turn and they're like Mm -hmm. very monstrous Mm -hmm. and i think in a sense that sometimes happens especially with bull connor or just some of these people like start to look like very like demonic almost and i think in that sense uh it might be cartoony but i think it, it serves its purpose because we are seeing these people um, sort of their inside inform their outside. But I think that it's uh, realistic. I enjoy uh, the way uh, that uh, the people are portrayed. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think some of them are very cute. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I like how they look. And then there are moments where, especially on TV, that the art changes and it looks even more realistic and stylized. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're like seeing a character watching on the TV monitor, the character is illustrated in a different manner than what's on the TV monitor, which I think is interesting. And and uh, like I said, um, Brett has Nate Powell's uh, the uh, Percy Jackson, not the Lost Year, the Ricky Riordan uh, graphic novel that he he illustrated, and it is way more. Um, you can tell he toned it down a little bit for this because that one is definitely cartoony, cartoony. You know, you know, like adventure cartoon because it's a kids comic book. Um, this is not, but at the same time, like his likeness of Martin Luther King is really well done. For instance, it can be a little cartoony at times, but at the same time, it like he, there's, there's a time when you have to do likenesses of real people that if it, when they're trying to do it too hard, almost it gets distracting. And I've never felt like portraying the real people in here, like Kennedy or Johnson or King or whatever, felt like it was taking me out of the story like you know hey that doesn't look like him or 
or or you know and and i thought the art was like really smooth and i agree with you on a lot of what you said i was like i have book three in my hand right now um and i'm on page 75 which has that panel where they're beating people in the street and uh the little kid is hitting the one uh mm-hmm. report the photographer He's like, come on, harder, Danny. That's my boy. Get him. Get them eyes. And the kid, the look on the kid's face is demonic, you know? Yeah. And yeah. and I think if the art had been more realistic, it wouldn't have been effective. What do you think of the black and white? Because it's, it's not in color. The color, the no, only color not. we see in the book is um, on the covers. The, the, the entire book is done in black and white. Um, do yeah. you think that's more or less effective than had it been fully colored? I think it's more effective. I uh, I like it because, and it's not flat black and white like Marjan Satrapi, no. uh, but you actually get to see, you know, the beauty of 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 man because you get to see the different uh, skin tones mm-hmm. throughout, which is great. But you know, symbolically, you've got this this separation, this divide between white people and black people. So I think it works well, and I think it's also in a uh, Walking Dead esque way, there would be times when there would be a lot of red on the page, mm-hmm. and I think uh, this prevents that from happening. But and and I think they do really well playing with the darkness. Like sometimes there are pages that are completely black, and there's yeah. something's coming out of the white. Some things. Uh, I think in book two, I saw the pages completely white. All that's there is a voting ballot box and a partial hand, and so they play really well with with using that black and white uh, in different ways. Yeah, I I was I I said I had book three in my hand. I had book two in my hand. How dare you lie? Know, the scenes at night too, like sure, they yeah. go full black background with the scenes at yep. night, and they they give you that that claustrophobic feeling of night and that that because that scene where they drop them off on the tennessee state line it's yeah. legitimately scary yeah because you're just like oh my god these people can die mm-hmm. you know and nobody's gonna find them because nobody knows where they are and yeah. they luck out they find somebody's willing to take them in but no i agree with you the lettering is interesting because like okay we're used to you and i read a lot of superhero comics and um Lettering has come quite a long way. I know a lot of it do- is done w- with computers. Mm. This is lettered by hand. I'm. It looks if it's not lettered by hand, it's a pretty good computer re- rendition. And you have <laughs> typical speech in a way that is typical comic book style. You know yeah. that oh, it's not quite John Costanza, but it's John Costanza. John Costanza, you know who I'm talking about. I do, about, I do. Yeah. Isn't there a comedian named John Costanza, too? George Costanza was a character oh, on Seinfeld. that's right, that's right. But when you <laughs> when you have people yelling, yep. the lettering gets bigger and it gets angrier. Or when you yep. have... Um, underlining. You have underlining. When you have Aretha Franklin in her gargantuan hat um, singing, it's, it's big. Because Aretha, Aretha don't sing... Aretha Franklin does not sing quietly, and we're all better for it. Or um, the 172, 173 of book two, tell them about the dream, Martin, and you have this black background, Martin Luther King, and it's getting louder and louder, and certain letters or words are underlined. I don't know. I really like the lettering in this book. What do Mm -hmm. you think? What's your? And there are times where they're all lowercase. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it gives you an idea of how people are speaking in a way that 
uh, just regular lettering or perhaps mouths or facials uh, wouldn't necessarily be able to uh, get across. Um, because facial, I think, certainly helps, but also you could look at something and without the bubble and maybe you would misinterpret what's happening. Mm-hmm. But I think they do a great job with the, with the lettering, and I think um, especially – when I saw the disparity between the all uppercase and the all lowercase, it got me thinking of how are they presenting this. And sometimes the all lowercase were perhaps people that were in the background that mm-hmm. you might ne- necessarily have to hear or listen to, especially because sometimes they would go off into scribbles or crowd scenes, things like that. Or maybe it's more of an idea of understanding that uh, you're listening rather than potentially reading it, though I was reading all those little speech bubbles. No, I was but too, just getting, yeah. yeah, just getting the idea of a, the crowd effect and seeing all these people and, and what they have to say. Yeah. And uh, so those are smaller. And then maybe just you know meek characters compared to uh, stronger or more uh, verbose characters. So yeah, I think that I, I feel like this is the first thing that I've seen like this potentially because with superhero comics, they certainly, they have italicized and you know, yes when there are the bad words, but really it's, it's usually always all capitalized and and not many things uh, change unless there are like sound effects put in there. But this really, uh, I think it's very atmospheric the way that they do it. I agree. And I also, appreciate the effort that was put into making this easy to follow there are some superhero comics that you and i have read maybe because they were rushed maybe because the just because of the quality of the team producing it and i'm not trying to knock superhero comics that the dialogue can be hard to follow because they're just not placing the word balloons in the right place or you oh. know like you, you and i probably come about that from time to time yeah, where like you read like a panel and two people are speaking, you realize that you read the word balloons out of order because of the way they were placed on the page and stuff. And yeah. I hear that as a complaint from a number of people who don't read comics. They're, they're hard to follow, and I get it. Then I point them, then I actually show them like if I can the comicsology or comics reader like panel to panel view, and they're like, "That's the yeah. coolest thing in the world." And I really do like the panel to panel view. Um, Keeps you from spoilers. Yeah, although I will say sometimes. The, I'm reading the Passaic Perez Avengers right now, and there are times where I'm like, I can't read the panel to panel because the page is just so Perez busy that I have to read the whole thing at once. But um, but with this, it's it's like they knew that the majority of their audience was not a comics audience. And I say that meaning that you're going to have people who haven't read a comic in a while, you know? And it's it's more of a mainstream. Or ever. Or ever. So they it looks like they took the effort to really make this flow easily. Mm-hmm. Especially because there are scenes with tons of dialogue in them. Yep. And I and I really commend them on that. I really like how much thought went into this book because it, it makes it um, it just it, it adds to it and, and lettering is not something I always pay that much attention to in a comic book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I definitely, definitely paid attention to it here. So to wrap us up, unless you have any more thoughts on the art or the, or the writing. No. Okay. To wrap us up, the question we always ask at the end of our look at a book, would you <laughs> that, that teach? Rhymed. Yes, it did. Would you teach this? 
Absolutely. And I was going to. And I was going to. I think that it's great because it gives you – it's a story about people – whose lives and uh, things that they've gone through we most likely have no experience with. Mm-hmm. And I would say that with the majority, right, because you're yeah. probably teaching a younger generation. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's good to show them this. Um, uh, unfortunately, and I don't want to blanket term this, but uh, the majority of today's youth uh, lacks empathy. So I would also be very concerned with how they would take it. But I think it's it's good to get an inside glimpse into civil rights and, and see uh, what these people were like and, and to follow one person around who isn't Dr. Martin Luther King. And, uh, yeah, I was looking forward to it. I was nervous about it because, you know, I wanted to do it justice. But, yeah, I was looking forward to, to teaching this. I don't want a blanket statement either, but I do <laughs> tend to agree with you. So yeah. you're, you're not alone. Yeah. I will say it frustrates, although I will say that some of the lack of empathy I see is things I recognized in some of my peers when I was in high school. Well, so it's not necessarily the generation, yeah. it's just the age group. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I, it still pains me to see the ha-ha saying racist things is funny attitude, Yeah. especially from boys. But it, but you're right. I mean, I think I would teach this if I if I was given the chance. I'm trying to think to myself, when is this appropriate for like me to like say, hey Brett, you know, if you're interested, read this. Sure. Not at ten years old. No. Maybe yeah, I'd say ninth grade. Ninth, bare minimum. Yeah, high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, I mean. I, I had a question in our questions that I didn't get to about the violence and the, and the language, mainly because we talked about it. And I really, you know, honestly, uh, what's one of the things I appreciated that they didn't shy away from the violence and the use of racial, racial yeah. epithets for the sake of just epithets, um, epithets for the sake of um, going easy on the audience. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. it was a challenge book, so. Yeah, yeah. Of course, uh, we always choose these challenge books. You will see reason. how many of these books we're are on like this list. countercultural as a podcast, I guess. Fight the power, damn the yeah, man, okay. save the empire. Okay, so we we don't have a lot of feedback. Um, I know that Robert Ward did not necessarily like Eleanor and Park. I don't think he didn't like our episode. I just think he didn't like the book, but he didn't really get into why. Uh, and Robert, if you want to send us, feel free. Uh, and... Probably. Have you seen Silver Linings Playbook? No, is that the Jennifer oh. Lawrence Bradley Cooper movie? Yeah, and there's a scene where Bradley Cooper is reading an Ernest Hemingway mm-hmm. novel. I'm not sure which one it is, but he gets to the end and he says, "What the?" And you know, he says a bad word and throws it out the window and breaks the window. And at this time, he's like living with his parents, so he like runs up and he starts to talk about how angry he is. So that's what I imagine Robert Ward did. Okay. Um, I can, I can picture that. I did that with the Iliad, not out a window, but across the room. Um, but I love the Odyssey. Uh, (laughs) and I enjoyed the Aeneid, but I got to reread the Aeneid because it's been way too long. Anyway, um, and uh, we did get a couple of comments on our Elemental P episode, like what? On Facebook. Yeah. Like a couple of little comments here and there, like some people who have been like halfway through it. So we'll see if anything about Elemental P to 
next episode. Uh, we do have. I did ask if it was a revenge book, and I said no. No. Well, the funny thing was is that Re- I liked Rebecca so much that <laughs> I know. So my revenge backfired. Mm-hmm. Um, you serve revenge too warm. Uh, it was Jack Wanda revenge, is what they've called it. The mm-hmm. fans. Yes. Anyway. Um, Isn't revenge a dish bet served cold? I know, and you served to me warm. <laughs> okay. See what I did there? Uh, so we have a website comment. Remember, our website is requiredreadingwithtomandstella.com, and there's a post for every one of our episodes. It's just Sometimes it's just a link to the um, episode on the TTF website and the cover of the book, but in, if we have any extras to put up there, we will. And we've started doing uh some book reviews of things we've read just short things just to talk about stuff that we're definitely not going to podcast about but we thought you might find interesting um one of the comments on our eleanor and park episode was from at libby says so and she said (laughs) i just yep i just said uh she says i just listened to eleanor and park episode thanks i needed a bit of closure i'm here (laughs) now I'm here now because I felt a little frustrated that I couldn't chime in to say this. When Eleanor tries to have sex with Park in the truck, I wondered if it was a callback to their conversation slash argument earlier in the book about Tina being his first girlfriend and first kiss. Park's keep, Park keeps saying it doesn't matter, and Eleanor counters, but you'll always remember. Mm, yeah, so he That's would always a, potentially re- remember, remember like his first time. time. That's, you know what, I I think that's as good a, I think it's an excellent point. Yeah. Actually, that that makes makes a lot of sense. So thank you, Libby. Uh, Libby says so. Thank you very much. And if you want to, um, and if you want to get uh, some feedback to us, you can leave a comment on any of the blog posts or Facebook, or we are at, uh, we are on Twitter at required reading, uh, rec, R-E-Q reading cast. Can I just say, though, that if Eleanor, if that is her intention, is pretty cruel of her, because I don't know if at that point she knew what she was going to do, like sever all ties, but it almost seemed like it was one of those, like, goodbye. And to do that, to do that and say, like, I hope you always remember is really cruel, especially since she's, like, about to basically disconnect from him. It's really selfish. Yeah. in In a sense. It's... And it's it's her just putting back up those walls of, you know, I don't I don't need any, but you know, like that sort of wall she always had up about people who, you know, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna walk away because I need yeah. to get on and things like that. I, I agree. There's there's a cruelty in it, and there's certainly a selfishness in it too. Mm-hmm. All right, so that is that is it. We got one more thing we got to do before we go, and Stella, that is on you so what are we reading for next month guys i am so excited so november is my birthday month and usually it's basically the entire month i count down to my birthday and the birthday happens so i'm gonna anniversary what'd you say it's my wedding anniversary month Oh, that's exciting. So I decided that I'm going to pick something super special to me because it is my birthday. And that is why (laughs) we're going to tackle one of my most favoritest novels, Jane Eyre. The Brontes. Yes. 
Well, just one Bronte. Oh. Charlotte. Yeah, I've read the other one. Or one of the other ones. All right, Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. That'll go all the way back to our promo. Oh, it will. That's, I guess it's about time, huh? I guess so. All right, well, tune in in about a month uh, for us to talk about Jane Eyre by Charlotte. Yes. Charlotte Bronte. Yes, yeah, Emily wrote the book that I don't like. Wuthering? Um, yeah, I don't like Wuthering Heights very much. I will never choose that, so. Yeah, maybe what I. Um... But uh, yeah, tune in, tune in about a month for uh, for our discussion on Jane Eyre, and until uh, and and don't forget feedback. Go to the go to the blog, Required Reading with Tom and Stella dot com for uh, periodic blog posts about other books that you might find uh, find interesting. So uh, and as always, thank you for listening and and take care. And be sure you know the difference between a unicorn and a Pegasus. These things are important. They are important. Can you tell us? Can you inform us? Because you helped, you helped get a ruling for Mike Norton, a comic artist. Uh, is that who it was? Yeah, Mike Norton. He's a comic. You, you know who he is? Uh, sounds familiar. Have you ever heard of the Image series Revival? I think I have. Yeah. Yeah, he drew it, and he's drawn a few oh, other okay. things. He drew the Waiting Place, which is one of my favorite uh, coming oh. of age comic graphics. Oh, novels. yeah. So he drew book two and three of it anyway. I say, yeah. Well, a unicorn, uh, you know, it's coming from the Latin, you know, unus, and then uh, cornu, which means horn. So it is a horse-like creature with one horn, but no wings. The Pegasus, however, is a horse-like creature with wings, but no horn. The more you know. Yep. The more you know. Or, you know, knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe. Good night. (laughs) Goodbye. We shall all have peace one day. We shall all. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Yeah,